Welcome to the CEC Report for the 1st of March 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, there are only two options in the coming crash, bank separation or bail-in. Make your choice known. And secondly, re-regulate to end the milk price wars. So firstly today, there are only two options in the coming crash, mm -hmm. bank separation or bail-in, make your choice known. Uh, so we're gonna give an update in the next segment on what's happening with the bail-in laws and we'll explain that a bit later um, due to a new IMF report that's out. So we'll come back to that. But firstly, we want to talk about the campaign for Glass-Steagall banking separation in Australia in the form of our bill, which is on the floor of the Senate the Banking System Reform Separation of Banks Bill 2019. Now that's been referred to the Senate Economics Legislation Committee and they are seeking submissions, as you might already know, on that bill so that they can give a recommendation to um, the government, to the parliament on whether that's appropriate or not for Australia, particularly given the oncoming global financial crash, a new one we're now facing. And this committee is seeking submissions uh, from the public, and we'll be organising submissions from experts, obviously, as well. But we're asking everyone to put in a submission to that committee. We want to flood these MPs so that they cannot ignore this issue. Yeah. Those submissions are due by the 12th of April. So if you haven't already do, done yours, do it now so it's out of the way and it's done. And then you can organise other people to do the same. I mean, there's many people watching this show, Elisa, that, uh, you know, that they want to do something. And you have to understand, putting a submission into a committee is not a complicated issue. What we want people to do is express to the committee what they think should happen with the breaking up of the banks. Yep. That's as simple as that, right? And it doesn't have to be super long, but it's important that they express their voice because that is what the politicians mm. have to hear. And we're going, we would like to get thousands upon thousands of, uh, of these submissions. See, we've done this, these sorts of mobilisations before with Senate commissions, but usually it's trying to stop stuff Right. Yeah. Well, this time it's really crucial yeah. that people have their voice heard for this government to act, right? To actually put a policy in that's a necessary policy for the country. We're not just trying to stop something here or protest. Yeah. They have an act. People have an active participation. Need to have an active participation yeah. to actually develop and push forward good laws that we need for the nation. Yeah. That's why they should do this. And we're taking it a step further, therefore. On Wednesday the 27th, we put out a press release calling for public hearings. And the committee does allow for public hearings uh, within the three-month term of the inquiry, subject to the availability of the committee. <laughs> now, the only excuse I can think of, you know, because they're not sitting in Parliament, maybe they can say, well, there's an election, we've got to be out campaigning. But if that's their excuse, they better watch out because they will be mobbed. They should be, this should be their campaign, actually, because this is popular. Uh, we mentioned in last week's show there was a survey by an investment website that showed 71% of respondents um, said that the Royal Commission should have recommended breaking up the banks. So there's a lot of popular support for this, and you've got to make it known to your MP. Now, in the realm of hearings, though, the reason this is important is because this will bring top experts um, to the committee and so that all the members of parliament on that committee can hear from them and that will make an even bigger impact than what ordinary submissions or written submissions will. Um, we, will we would you know, be promoting for experts um, that are uh, working, for instance, in sectors of um, the regulators, such as a former 
uh, APRA whistleblower, Dr. Wilson Sai, who's worked within those industries and can point out in detail and under parliamentary privilege, I might add. So there's a lot actually that people like him could say that they couldn't say in any other forum, literally because of the secrecy provisions of institutions like APRA. Um, and for instance, they can really rip apart the methodologies that these regulators and treasury, etc., have followed that have brought us to the brink of a new uh, financial crisis in this country, a blowout of the housing bubble, for instance, uh, allowing massive bank exposure to housing, to mortgages, given their risk weighting and so forth, inflating a bubble, allowing mortgage fraud, including the doctoring of mortgage applications, using household expenditure measures to um, overstate people's incomes, uh, the lack of regulation and not enforcing the regulations, the pathetic ones that are there, and much, much more. And this is what led to the crimes of the banks that we saw on display during the Royal Commission, but which because of the terms of reference, uh, the Royal Commission was not able to adequately respond to. What we're saying is that this committee can begin to put the adequate response, the, the really the response that is required uh, and of course to prevent it from happening again, which would be banking separation to prevent um, retail banks and commercial banks from having any intersection with the speculative casino that's about to come yeah. down. Yeah. And look, the, Lisa, the committee is made up of bankers. Mm. Um, this is why it's really important that we push the issue for hearings. Look, you've got Jane Hume, who's a former senior banker with the NAB, Rothschild Australia and Deutsche Bank. You've got Arthur Sinodinus, that people may have heard of, former banker with at uh, Goldman Sachs Australia and the NAB. And you've got then, of course, uh, Peter Wish Wilson uh, from the Greens, uh, also a former banker, but with Merrill Lynch US, uh, Merrill Lynch in the United States and Hong Kong. So, and he's in favour of Glass-Steagall. Yes, so that's he's right. He's in a separate he's, category because yeah. the Greens have that policy, fortunately. But you can't let, we can't let these bankers dictate the future of our country by holding mm. up and creating these administrative roadblocks. So people really got to uh, push for this uh, for these mm. hearings. And if you need any help putting your submission into this committee, give us a call on our toll-free number um, because there are easier ways to do it than um, putting it through the um, Commission's website if you're having problems. So let us know. Now we'll be right back in a moment to discuss the bail-in side of this equation. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing the two options available to us in the face of the oncoming financial crisis and that is bank separation or bail-in and we're now going to talk about the bail-in side of it because the International Monetary Fund has put out their promised report, this is their five, annual, five yearly financial sector assessment of Australia. Uh, which they had foreshadowed would be an assessment or it would include an assessment of where we are in uh, establishing a bail-in or it's also known as a resolution regime which gives um, yeah. the power for banks to be resolved without shutting them down so that they can keep operating in a crash. In, in simple language, Elisa, when you put your money in the bank, those deposits are considered a liability to the bank. Right when they loan, when banks loan out money, they're considered assets to the bank. But what happens is, when the liabilities get greater than the assets, the banks are insolvent. So what bail-in does, it gives a legal right for for the banks to come in and say, "We want your deposits." Mm. Now people are shocked by that, but that's exactly what bail-in is, and this is what the, the the Financial Stability Board 
you know, internationally has come out and says every single bank in the world has to have these provisions whereby if they become insolvent, people lose their deposits. Mm. And that's there's various, various laws that have been enacted in Australia that have allowed that exact process to happen. So this is what we're fighting and that's why our bank separation bill is the antidote to mm. this horrendous process. That's right. And you might have heard about this IMF report in the media because much of the media was citing it, but they didn't, not that I've seen so far, they haven't mentioned this bail-in aspect to it. Um, because they've focused on the fact that the IMF warned that we're not well prepared here in Australia for a banking crisis, given the higher levels of household debt and also the very high exposure of our banks to um, residential and commercial real estate. So, and what they're, te they're, what they're not telling the viewer is that since 2013, the CEC has been so active on this. Mm. We've shone a spotlight like no other country has on this issue, and they've not been able to yeah, push on the rug, yeah. laws that would have had this in years ago. Exactly, and they admit in this report, which is detailed and lengthy, so we're not going to cover too much of it today, but they do admit that Australia's had a very conservative approach to getting this bail-in power, which, as you said, is because of us. Um, so I'll give you a few of the predicates of this. Um, the IMF paper cites encouraging progress, given the new APRA emergency powers, which are the bills that we fought against, um, but they say that the resolution or bail-in framework has not been fully completed and needs to be finalised. Um, the report says that the recently enacted Crisis Management Act confers new powers on APRA to resolve financial institutions in distress. It strengthens APRA powers regarding conglomerate groups, statutory management, directions, transfer, conversion and write-off of capital instruments, stays, foreign branches, the financial claim scheme, wind-up and resolution planning. APRA has started to translate the new powers into prudential standards and internal work processes. So in other words, APRA's now, they've got the powers and they're moving ahead to design the infrastructure to actually conduct the resolution. So this is where you'll see the devil in the detail. And we said, when this law was coming up, we mobilised on it, Lisa, this power gives the APRA and the banks bail-in capabilities. Yes. Oh, no, 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 the government said, no, 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 it doesn't. Until a couple of months ago, a senator from Queensland came out and said, yes, it does. Mm, yeah. So we weren't lying, we weren't over-exaggerating. These powers exist. And this report actually proves it too. Um, it goes on to talk about how we need to expand the total loss-absorbing capacity, which is the, cap the form of capital that can be bailed in to save banks in a crisis. Um, that's expected. They, one of the things that was interesting is they talked about integrating Australia and New Zealand's bail-in regimes. And this is interesting because New Zealand explicitly allows all deposits to be bailed in um, by these powers. It says, given the significant interconnectedness and potential spillover effects, the Australian authorities should enhance cooperation with the New Zealand financial regulators within the Trans-Tasman Council of Banking Supervisors in the context of bank resolution. It talks about improving cross-border bank resolution modalities with New Zealand. Um, Another thing is that it talks about finalising resolution powers to apply to what's known as financial market infrastructure. So this is not banks, but this includes payment systems, trading platforms, security settlement systems and central counterparties. And the Council of Financial Regulators is drafting legislation to do that now. So this is extensive. This is to cover the whole financial system. They're not taking any shortcuts. One of the very other important things is they talk about strengthening the independence of APRA, ASIC and the Reserve Bank. Um, they say that we must strengthen the independence of APRA and ASIC by removing constraints on policy making powers 
and that they should have more funding autonomy. Um, listen to this, they say APRA has clear powers for resolution, etc., but these can be disallowed by the Parliament. The fact that its prudential standards can be disallowed weakens APRA's prudential standards setting powers in achieving its statutory mandate, even if this case seems exceptional and has not taken place to date. <laughs> well, listen, look at the Royal Commission, Lisa. It found that APRA ASIC were wanting. Into, now they're saying that these mm. incompetent organisations are now to be given more power to do yeah. what? Well, they're there, well they're, they're there to protect the banking system, not the depositors. And it, and it wants to take any role of elected people, elected politicians, away from influencing these powers. It says, the power to the minister to issue directions to APRA about policies it should pursue is a matter of potential concern. And then it talks about how the consent of the treasurer is required for the use of certain resolution powers. The other thing you'll find interesting, Craig, is that the IMF also says that while financial stability is one of a number of objectives of APRA, which should normally they talk about how it should be balanced with other objectives, uh, the IMF says the other objectives are subordinate to the financial stability mandate. In other words, bailing comes first, everything else. Yeah, the financial system takes priority over people. Yep. That is, that is, you've got to use bail-in to maintain the financial stability of the system. That's that's a shortcut off. Yeah. Your deposits are not safe in this system. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of other details, and we'll be writing this up for a future alert service press release. Um, but the IMF essentially calls for a broader, standalone statutory, which means in the law, bail-in power, completely independent of the treasurer or the ministry or any political figure, it also makes clear the intention is to be able to bail in anything, including deposits, anything that's not insured. Um, so that means deposits above the government guarantee will all be gone and makes clear why they could not possibly allow an amendment to explicitly exclude deposits, which is what we had organised, One Nation tried to put that in um, and was foiled by the government who rushed it through mm -hmm. uh, to not allow any explicit denial of deposits to be taken. Um, so these guys are going to push for this unless we stop it. And the best way that you can make your feelings on this known is to write a submission to the committee demanding Glass-Steagall. You can reference bail-in, but Glass-Steagall is the solution. Yeah, and Glass-Steagall, for those who don't know, is a separation of banks. The reason we've got into this problem is that you've got these huge banks now that are vertically integrated, right? You've got stockbroking houses, you know, insurance companies, You've got the banking, merchant banking, investment banking, and so forth. They're stacked like one on top of the other, right, Elisa? And these all have access to the deposits underneath as normal banking. What we're saying with our bill that's in the parliament now is you've got to separate out all that, have a, what we call boring commercial banking, which looks after the deposits, protects the deposits, and just as normal things that banking does. Everything else has to be separated out. Mm. And of course, the banks thought that that was going to happen in the Royal Commission. They were very, very nervous, but unfortunately that did not happen. But it's now shone a spotlight on mm. the fact that this uh, this is absolutely required. Yeah, and it, if we have Glass Steagall, it makes the whole bail-in question moot. Um, so we've got to stop there, but we'll be back shortly to talk about how we can revive Australia's productive industries while we're fixing the financial system. Welcome back to the CEC report re-regulate to end the milk price wars. Now before we get into this 
uh, I wanted to remind people if you haven't already, call in and we'll send you a complimentary copy of our Australian Alert Service so that you can see we do have all the backup information and documentation um, to back up everything we're saying here. We just don't have time to go through it all, so contact us or to get involved um, more. So milk prices. Of course, people would be familiar with the ongoing milk price wars. We had the recent saga where Woolies re uh, increased the price of milk, dollar a litre milk to a dollar ten, and then Coles and Aldi refused to match them. So that's all been going on. But the point is dairy farmers are leaving the industry in massive numbers, and particularly in the last few years. Um, of course, you have drought as well on top of the low prices that they're getting, high input costs, and especially water and electricity, which is affecting everybody. Yep. Um, 75,000 dairy cows were culled last year, which is up 5% on the year before, according to Dairy Australia. National milk production is now forecast to drop by 9% this financial year. And we have to ask the question, do we want to keep producing milk in this country? Well, the opposition is very nervous about this because Joel Fitzgibbon, the, Fitzgibbon, the opposition uh, agriculture minister, came out saying the Labor Party is looking at mm. introducing statutory pricing. Or Well, they put forward pricing. a bill actually calling yeah. on the ACCC, the Com Consumer Competition Council, to look at the best way of how to establish a minimum farm gate milk mm. price. Mm. Um, but that was defeated in Parliament and, you know, the ACCC last year did study this and they did not recommend a floor price. So it's pretty weak. Of course, the government came out and said you can't go back in time to re-regulation. So we need real leadership and we're going to show you an example of, you know, excellent leadership over time on this, which is Bob Catter. And this is a speech he gave in um, the day after this bill was tabled by Labor. Mr Speaker, I was going to move motion, but with the time limited, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to speak to the motion. Um, let me say that the reintroduction of a minimum price scheme is the only way this can ever be fixed up. For 70 years, and the founder of my party, the country party, the founder of my party got into politics by introducing a minimum price scheme. And the history books read when a couple of blokes at the big meeting disagreed with him, he took them out the back and gave them a flogging. And from then on was called Blackjack McEwen. There's a few blokes over here on this side that probably deserve the same treatment, Mr. Speaker. Let me be very formal, Mr. Speaker. Jeff Kennett deregulated the market and took away the arbitrated price into the Melbourne market, which destroyed the industry in Victoria. But it did not destroy the industry and New South Wales and Queensland. They were subsequently deregulated. They were subsequently deregulated on the day. Now this this is this is what arbitration does for you, right? On the day before arbitrate we lost arbitration, we were on fifty-nine cents. On the day after arbitration, we we're on forty-one cents. So how can you answer that arbitration? is wrong, Mr Speaker. When the price was introduced 60 years ago, the price went up nearly 400 per cent, Mr Speaker. When in the wool industry, Doug Anthony, in the most controversial manner, introduced the wool scheme, the price went up within two years 300 per cent. And for those larks in this place, there's a bludgery guy here that was yelling out wool. That was the last example you should ever have used, because when, when, 
that the, the wool scheme was introduced by that great man, Doug Anthony, the price went up 300 per cent. When the bludgery guys on this side, when the bludgery guys on this side deregulated the wool industry, precipitated by you blokes, precipitated by you blokes, the price for wool dropped to one third and the income to Australia dropped from $5.9 billion a year to $2.4 billion. I'll repeat that. When it was deregulated, now, now, now the member, I, I don't know his name, the bloke here with glasses, right? I've got no idea of his name. I ain't going to memorise because he probably won't be here after the election. But, but he's saying there was a bad thing, right? So it's a bad thing that Doug Anthony introduced it and took the price up 300 per cent. And then let me be very specific, within three years of the deregulation, it fell from five, I'll repeat it slowly, from 5.9 billion down to 2.4 billion. 64% of the sheep herd is gone, right? As a result of the deregulators in this place, in the egg industry, the price to the consumers went up, the price to the farmers went down. In the sugar industry, under deregulation, the price to the farmers went down and the price to the consumers went up. Now, I mean, how much evidence do you want? How much evidence do you want? And if the honourable spokesman opposite has had a fall off his horse on the road to Damascus, I'm still in a state of shock because his reputation for being one of the great free marketeers in this place, I'm still in shock. But then if it could happen to St Paul, I suppose it could happen to a lesser light uh, in this place. Um, now, now, what happened? Who got the money in the egg industry if the price went down to the farmers and the price went up to the consumers? 320 million. The boys in the middle got 320 million. In the sugar industry, the boys in the middle got 311 million. And in the dairy industry, with this great champion over here with his glasses on, uh, he doesn't use them very often, clearly, because he hasn't read anything. Um, in the milk industry, the price went down to the farmers um, from 59 cents to 41 cents. It went up to the consumers, 115 to 156 cents. And piggy in the middle, and I used the word piggy with a forethought, got 11, 1.1 thousand million dollars of extra Kennedy's profit. Time so there you concluded. go. One so Bobcat is absolutely on the mark here, Lisa. And you know, we've been around now for over 30 years. And back in the 90s, early, actually late 80s it was, we produced this document, Sovereign Australia, an economic development project, a project program to save the nation. Back then, we called for parity pricing of all farm products, not just milk. Mm. And look, if you don't have the means to support production at the farm gate, you're going to lose your farmers. That's what's happening. And we've only got about, I think, 40,000 family farmers left out of three, four hundred thousand that we used to have back in the fifties. That's that's four hundred that's forty thousand farmers who can actually uh, produce on the land. So we've lost a lot of our and I know those farmers are absolutely smothered in debt. Mm. So there's a this is there's a crisis issue here, Elisa. The fact that the opposition put up this bill to even begin to look at it shows you how important this yeah. is because you've had a free trade consensus in this country for mm -hmm. so long, it's destroyed our country. So I mean, this is, it's good that this debate's happening, but it's well and truly overdue. 
Yeah, and it's commensurate too with the debate about banking deregulation because even Paul Keating's talking about reversing <laughs> yeah, some of that. Right. So, you know, there's good progress. We have to keep pushing. So don't forget to make your submission. Call us if you need more information. Thanks for tuning in to the CEC report. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. See you again next week.